sound. <laughs> I wonder if you've ever entered a church where every single song they're playing, you have no idea about the music, you have no idea about the words, you have no idea what they're singing. I mean, you're like a fish out of water. You go in and you have these voices around you and they're all heartily, happily, energetically singing and uh, you have no idea what the lyrics are. Everyone seems to know that the chorus is meant to be repeated twice. Not three times. Everyone knows when the musical interlude is meant to start, and you're like singing when they're meant to be playing the guitar. And worse still, even though the words are familiar, the song is actually totally different to what you expect. You might be starting to sing Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, and then all of a sudden it's, my chains are gone. I've been set free you realize that you've been singing Amazing Grace from the 1600s and they're singing the new millennium version by Chris Tomlin. Before too long, you're, complete, you're feeling like a complete doofus in this group of people. You see, as wonderful as music is in bringing people, especially in churches, together, music is also a powerfully tribal thing. Music can unite and music can divide. Even though it's often called a universal language, music is a boundary marker to mark those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. And when we experience that, it's almost like speaking to another human being, but in a completely foreign language. The first thought that comes to our minds is that we don't belong. And right here, this feeling of exclusion exposes a very fundamental need that we all have, that need to belong. When it comes to looking at the Psalms, our desire to join in and enjoy these rich and ancient songs, that's real. But often we feel like we don't have the key to get inside. We feel that we can't join in because these songs don't really belong to us. Or perhaps closer to the truth, we don't feel that we really belong to the people they're written for. And on the surface, it seems true. The Psalms are all about Israel, Israel's rescue, Israel's hopes, Israel's anguish, Israel's comfort. And most of all, they speak of Israel's relationship with God. And for them, this was the most sacred thing in all of the Psalms, something that non-Jews did not and could not enjoy. 
And so unless we somehow identify with Israel, we feel like we have very little access to what the Psalms speak about. And yet, Psalm 117 addresses the nations. It addresses all peoples. Sing praise to the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all peoples. This psalm opens the door wide to all of us belonging to God's people. It is an open invite to God's praise session. And so my hope and prayer this afternoon is that we'll hear God's invitation to all peoples of every nation, Jew and Gentile, to come and join in worshipping him. God stands at the doorway with a generous heart, is saying, don't just stand on the outside, come inside. And here's the thing, because of God's love and faithfulness found in Christ Jesus, we can belong to God. That's what Psalm 117 ultimately points to. It shows us that even though we're not God's people, we're called to join in universal praise. It shows that even though God is under no obligation to bring us into his family, we're secure in our belonging because of God's love and faithfulness. And finally, it shows that all of this means that we can respond with hallelujah, praise the Lord as God's people. So we start with verse 1. The summary is everyone, sing. Verse 1 is a universal call to praise God. Praise God, extol Him. Both these words are commands to declare the beautiful excellent qualities of a person. And in this particular case, that's God. When I hear the word praise, I think of sports fans. And the very first time I ever read the sports headline, is Roger Federer the real goat? I had no idea what that meant. I I thought that he played tennis like a goat, which I don't think I've ever seen. Or he grunted like one when he made a winner. Or maybe he just sported a goatee. But then I realized that commentators referred to Federer's movements as swift, as a gazelle, not a goat. His on-court demeanor was was quiet, and he was clean-shaven. Goat didn't refer to his playing style, his appearance, or his movement. Goat stands for greatest of all time. Wow. So when Federer fans waved their placard saying, Federer the goat, they're giving praise to the one who they see as the greatest tennis player of all time. Verse 1 calls everyone, all peoples, all nations, to speak of God's greatness, to lift up his name, to declare him as mighty, amazing, and beautiful. It's to see the work of his hands, sunsets and sunrises, mountains and forests, and be hushed with awe at the Creator's genius. We do it naturally when we incessantly Instagram photos of our holiday pictures, but few of us really will add the note, God, the goat. It's to experience the goodness of what God provides, the food, the jobs, the family, the friends, and to be able to say with sincere gratitude, God, you're awesome. All of these things presuppose one thing. It presupposes that you know God, that you're in his orbit, in his network of friends, that you belong to him. And so it's a bit odd, isn't it, that the psalmist calls the nations and peoples to do this. Because normally in the psalms, they're the very ones who are hostile to God. Psalm 2 says, 
the psalmist says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Psalm 115 says, they're, they're the ones who taunt Israel. And they say, where is their God? They're the ones who say, God is not great. God is not wonderful. God is not mighty. On the other hand, throughout the Psalms, it's the Israelites who belong to God. They were his treasured possessions. Israel had a special friendship with God. And if that was so, how come Psalm 117 speaks to the nations, to the whole world? Well, to answer that, I think we need to think back to where that God and Israel relationship begins. Our Psalm today, 117, is actually a part of a set of Psalms running from 113 to 118, and it's called the Egyptian Hallel. These were typically sung during the Passover and reminded Israel of God's love and faithfulness as he brought them out of Egypt. At the Passover, they remembered this great event, and the people were also reminded of a special relationship that God made with his people through Moses. And yet before this relationship that happened after the Exodus, there was another earlier relationship that God had with his people Israel. And it was actually with God, uh, Israel's forefather, Abraham. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, God says to Israel's ancestor, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Hear that again. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Psalm 117 is a reminder to Israel that God keeps all of his promises. God's promise wasn't that Israel alone would be saved and blessed. Instead, Israel was blessed as Abraham's descendants to be the bearer of God's blessing to the world and to witness to his love and faithfulness. The fact is, right from the very beginning, God had a place for people from every tribe and from every tongue, which this very psalm addresses, to actually belong to him. So here's the thing. When we gather like this on Sunday to worship, when we praise together, when we're praying together, when we do these things, we're a part of God's promised fulfillment to Abraham. When we come and are blessed by gathering in Christ's name and we call upon the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, we're both recipients of God's blessings and witnesses to his love and faithfulness. And so Psalm 117 calls out to all nations and all peoples to praise God. But it doesn't stop there. We can sing because we're secure in our belonging to God on the basis of his own love and faithfulness. And that's point two. The next verse of this psalm fleshes this out. Now before we hone in onto verse two, I want to take a step back and take a look at Psalm 117 as a whole. There's something very beautiful and symmetric about it, isn't there? The psalm begins with a praise and ends with praise. It's a hymn. And hymn has this structure, where you start with a call to worship, and the second part is a reason for that praise. And the third is another command or another encouragement and exhortation to praise. And so when you look at it this way, I hope you can see that the lines of this psalm quite literally point an arrow to the center at God. 
So he's sandwiched between verse 1 and the last part of verse 2 is a line that gives the reason for praise. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Now, if we took a further step in and put the Hebrew words directly into English, what you'd get is quite literally, for great upon us is his love, and the faithfulness of the Lord is to eternity. You see, this verse sets the words love and faithfulness together, right in the middle of the entire psalm. And when you see this kind of pattern, it's a real hint that the psalmist wants us to focus on these words. What we have here, right in the middle of this verse, in the middle of the psalm, is God himself revealed through two of his key defining characteristics, the word pair love and faithfulness. And this pair of words sustained Israel throughout her misery, throughout her time of trouble, throughout her exile, and even after the exile when people didn't know when God was coming back. And so first we look at the words themselves. The Hebrew word that the NIV translates love is one which refers to loyal, pure love in the context of a relationship. This word speaks of God's favor upon Israel, his unremitting goodwill towards them. There's a kind of reciprocal agreement in this relationship. It's like one that's between a husband and a wife, a parent and a child, or a ruler and his subject. In that there are expectations and there are responsibilities between two parties. If you wash the car, I'll take the rubbish out. If you listen to me, I'll give you your treat. But the difference with God is this love relationship is one in which he is always the giver. He is always the initiator. Nobody can pay God back. Nobody can make God a debtor. He is always superior. Next, there's the word faithfulness. This is God's truthfulness. There's no falsehood in God. He will do exactly as he has said he would do. With God, what you see is what you get. God is faithful, and that is a key part to who he is. And so the psalmist tells us why we're to praise God. It's simply because he's the God who loves with lavish promises, promises that are true and kept. Right here, we have to consider again that question of belonging. How is it that the nations whom this psalm addresses how can they lay claim to belonging to Israel's God? In fact, how can anyone lay claim to belonging to God at all? See, even though God chooses Israel to be his people, like every single other human civilization or nation that has ever lived, they desired his gifts more than God himself. They desired his power and his ruling authority over the world, but not over them. They wanted nothing more than to go their own way. And the result is what we call sin. When our first child was a baby, we uh, had a lot of sleep trouble. Maybe some people can relate. We went to a community-based service called Tresillion, uh, which helps uh, parents with babies who have sleep issues. 
And when we got there, we realized that Tresillion not only offers counseling and strategies to babies who have sleep issues, they also offer uh, strategies and advice to help new parents with feeding issues. And as we shared stories of our baby troubles, one mother's story particularly stuck to my mind. She shared how incredibly draining it was to prepare food for her daughter, only to be rejected. They tried everything, hoping to find something she'd eat. In fact, they'd gone so far as to order takeaway for themselves while making elaborate 10-course meals full of variety and flavor and texture and color for their daughter. And they were absolutely exhausted and dejected because every time they offered it to her, she would turn her head and reject it. And as she shared this, the father cried out, exasperated. We don't even have time to look after ourselves. Isn't this the way we treat God? When God offers us his lavish love and we doubt it, we question it, we choose to reject it or hurl it back at him, isn't it an attack on God himself? Isn't it saying that we have some better way or idea? And that's what sin is. Sin is taking God's fatherly love and gifts and presenting him with a counterfeit version of it, a fake one, and saying that this fake version is better than what you have to give me. And when we read the Bible, it's easy to see how Israel makes mistakes with God, their unfaithfulness, their idolatry. But Israel is meant to be a mirror for all of humanity. All created humankind are called to belong to him and to give glory to him, but all of us have failed to do so. Romans 22, 3.22 says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does God do? He shows his love and faithfulness in a way that only God can. First, God's love is great. The original meaning is strong, literally prevailing. The sense of prevailing over something is a, is a really good indication of strength. It's like when you battle it out in an arm wrestle and you struggle and you strain and you test tense in your biceps and you prevail over your opponent and you win. God's love is strong. It prevails. And that's in contrast to our love, our puny and weak love which fails. I sometimes wonder how many promises I've made which I've been unable to keep as a parent. When it comes to comparing God's perfect fatherly love with mine, mine perfections particularly stand out. As an imperfect father, I'm meant to love, protect, and nurture my children. I'm meant to listen to the things which upset them. I'm supposed to raise their awareness of sin and lead them to confess. I'm meant to coach them, not with mindfulness strategies, but with the very words of Scripture to train them up in the instruction of the Lord. But far too often, my self-love overtakes me. I excuse myself for being too tired when I lose my temper with them. I choose to neglect their emotions in favor of indulging my own. I don't pick them up on the way they act from their sinful hearts simply because it's too difficult. My love for them is weak, while God's love for us is strong and prevailing. It never fails. It is not self-seeking, not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Second, his faithfulness is enduring. The quality of enduring means that it is everlasting. 
one of the areas where our faithfulness is most often tested is in our speech. Because we can measure our commitment and faithfulness to a relationship by the trustworthiness of the words we say. We often give wishy-washy answers, don't we? If this happens, then I'll do this. I'll come when this thing goes ahead. Well, I'll let you know closer to the time. It's not because I don't know what will happen or when things will happen. It happens more often because I'm not prepared to make it happen, no matter what. In effect, I'm saying to the other person, you can't count on me to be there for you. God isn't like this. His word is truth. His faithfulness endures. What he has said remains true forever. What we hold in our hands, God's word, the Bible, is God's revealed account of his truth. It is unchanging. It is enduring because God himself is faithful. So where does that leave us? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 9, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Then he quotes this very psalm two verses later to show that God's gospel offer is truly universal. The peoples of the world are called to praise God. How is it possible for sinners who hate God to be reconciled, adopted, and belong to Him? Well, I think that the key verse, the key to looking at verse 2 here, is to see it as the ground of God's rescue plan for all peoples. In other words, on the basis of God's strong love and His enduring faithfulness, on God Himself, God's rescue plan for the world will be activated. The term ground zero became widely used after September 11, 2001, when two passenger jets hijacked by terrorists flew directly into the twin towers of the New York City skyline. And the site where the twin towers were built and fell, that was called ground zero in the popular press. Now, in common speak, ground zero is the place or the event in time which has history-changing significance. The term focuses our attention on the moments and places which turn the course of history and the trajectory of lives, even to those who come after it. Maybe you haven't thought about it too much, but history actually has many ground zeros. Ancient Israel's biggest ground zero was the Exodus. Their rescue from Egypt, from bondage, by divine intervention, shaped them from being a tribal group of families into a nation with their God. In that great event, God's faithfulness to their forefather Abraham was cemented forever. God's love for them was made real. He lifted them out of slavery put them into the land he prepared for them, and blessed them. He grew them into a people. And even though observant Jews today have not seen the Exodus, they observe the Passover because of the impact that Exodus event had on their cultural identity. Yet the Exodus would not be God's ultimate ground zero. In order to show his great love and faithfulness to the whole world, God prepared an earth-shattering event 
God's ground zero was activated on a wooden stake on a hill. His global rescue begins with a death. The cross where Jesus died was where God in his love stooped to kiss a rebel world. There in prevailing love and enduring faithfulness, he broke the curse which separated humanity from himself. As Jesus died, God accepted his perfect sinless life as the ultimate sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. He makes the ultimate call out from the cross to all the peoples of the earth. Come, see my son, follow him. So I want to ask you, where is your ground zero? What do you come back to again and again and again to anchor your life and build upon it? I don't know where you're at this morning, whether you're at the cusp of experiencing a life-changing promotion, a life-changing relationship, a life-changing moment, but I want to tell you that for those who desire to belong to God, ground zero in human history happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. Even though none of us in this room were there to see it, the accounts of the Bible record for us what happened at the very point that God entered our world. Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate act of God's strong love and unending faithfulness towards us. Christian, Psalm 117 calls you to praise God because he himself has promised you his strong love and enduring faithfulness. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what I want to draw your attention to is that at the very heart of it all is a God who wants you to belong to him as much as you want to belong to something. We're always trying to belong to something or someone, aren't we? And perhaps you're not quite ready to make that God. But the thrust of this psalm is that if you were to fight his love, you'd lose. If you were to play chicken with his faithfulness, he'd catch up with you. It's not a matter of you seeking God. It's a matter of him relentlessly pursuing you and not letting you go. And so when we've encountered God's strong and prevailing love, his enduring faithfulness, cemented in his covenant, there's little we can do but worship. The right response is to praise him. And so the psalmist ends the psalm with a cry, praise the Lord. The last line of this psalm is a simple hallelujah. And there are at least three ways I can think of saying hallelujah. First, in the awe and wonder before God, a hallelujah is a whisper. Because hallelujah is a surrender. The first fitting response to such a God is to surrender to him, not just to acknowledge him, but to rest in his faithful love. When the Thai boys were rescued from the cave earlier this year, one of the people who rescued them was an Australian anaesthetist who, who was also a diver. He actually had to lightly sedate the boys as they were, in order to take them out because they were afraid that if they struggled and fought against them, they would endanger both the lives of themselves and the rescuer. The boys had to learn to completely trust their rescuer. They had to surrender to that rescue plan. And we like to be called fighters. We want to prevail. But it just seems with the circumstances of our lives right now that everything is a wrestle and a struggle. We're scared that if we give up, we would have lost. We would have been overcome. 
Today, I want to invite you back to God's ground zero to see the cross. Everything begins there. Whatever mess your heart or your life is in right now, however badly you see the consequences of sin, either your own or others, cutting you off from God's presence in your life, I want you to know that what Jesus did on the cross is show you God's prevailing love for you. In Jesus, you are loved and you belong to God. Let his love prevail over your resistance. It was at the cost of his son's broken body and real blood shed. Let his love melt away your hardness and surrender to him. Surrender with hallelujah. But then after our first whisper, hallelujah is a massive comfort. Some of you are weighed down by guilt. What does it mean when even after you believe in Jesus, you still sin? We still seek our own good at others' expense. We still say hurtful words designed to belittle others. We mock and discredit others in order to get ahead. We imagine and act on lustful impulses which aim to use others. And no matter how hard we try to reform ourselves, we're still stuck in a defeated cycle. My friend, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for his steadfast love is stronger, stronger than our sin, stronger than our lies and our lusts. Praise the Lord that his faithfulness to his word is enduring, more enduring than our hasty confessions, our sorries, our pledges to never, never again. What comfort we have in Christ Jesus, whose blood washes us of guilt so that we are declared not guilty. Christ Jesus, whose blood pays our ransom price so that we belong securely to God and nobody else. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because of Jesus, we belong to God and he to us. And if we belong to God, we belong to him both individually and as a people. In church, we're among the company of broken-hearted sinners, of damaged goods returned, uh, redeemed. Sorry. And one day, we'll look forward to a new day. So finally, hallelujah is our hopeful joy proclaimed. Do you have a vision, brothers and sisters, of where we're headed? Do you know what is the Christian's destiny? It's that great chain of promises for those in Christ in Romans 8, 29 to 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The certainty of this word is rooted in God himself. If we are believers in Christ, what God has promised millennia ago to, to Abraham, to bless him with descendants and blessings to all the nations, has already begun to come to fruition in us. We are part of the fruit of that end time harvest. We're among the ones whom Abraham saw in the sky as numerous stars, and we will be among the great multitudes of Revelation 19 who shout, Hallelujah. So let this joyful hope take hold as we look back to what Jesus has done and forward to what God has prepared for us. As we finish, I want to bring you to the first question of an old teaching aid for Christians in the 16th century. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer begins like this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life 
and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 117 invites us to the very heart of God Almighty, who welcomes us with his prevailing love and unending faithfulness. We belong to him, he to us, and us to one another. Hallelujah. Why don't we stand to our feet as we respond to this message. God had three 